Welcome to the Radiant Podcast. We are so glad you joined us today. This podcast features messages, interviews, and discussions from Radiant Church located in Seneca, South Carolina. For more information about Radiant, visit RadiantChurchSC.com. Here's today's episode. Welcome to Radiant Church. My name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor, and we're so glad you could join us today. For everyone watching or listening from, if it's your first time joining us, hey, go to RadiantChurchSC.com and click I'm New. And fill out that short form online for us as a way of saying thank you. We're going to donate $5 to one of the nonprofits that's listed. We started the year by taking 10 weeks to dive into the book of Daniel. Now, we didn't finish our study. We actually left off in early March with a two-part look into Daniel chapter 7. But Today and next week, we're going to come back to Daniel with teachings on chapters 8 and 9. So very quickly, I just want to recap a few things before we continue. I I do want to mention that if you'd like to catch all the teachings in Daniel, you can go back and watch or listen to them anytime. Just be sure to download also the message notes so you can follow along with them. All of that's available at our website. If you go to RadiantChurchSC.com, you'll find everything there. Daniel is a unique book. It's, 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 it's unique in that it's one of two apocalyptic books in the Bible. The other one's being you know, Revelation. The first six chapters read like a narrative, chronicling important highlights from the life of Daniel and his friends. Shout out Meshach and Abednego. The book has a very clear divide, starting with chapter 7, from a historical narrative to apocalyptic prophecy. And this is what makes Daniel so unique from all the other books of the Bible, because no other book has a composition quite like Daniel does. Now, there's some important guidelines we have to embrace when we're handling apocalyptic prophecy in Scripture, or else we risk water, uh, wandering down some rabbit holes that can cause you know, us to misinterpret what we're reading. So let's recap the guidelines very quickly before we move into chapter 8. First, be cautious. Don't jump to conclusions right away. It's very, very important. Second, understand imagery. There's a lot of imagery in apocalyptic prophecy, lots of metaphors. Don't take everything so literally because often those images are being used as symbols. Third, understand numbers. Numbers often have a very symbolic, not literal meaning. Now today we're going to see how numbers, though imprecise, can signal definite action. I want to talk more about that at the end. Finally, understand context. So place yourself in the shoes of the person who's receiving the prophecy in their day and age as best as you can when you're reading. Okay, Try to look at it through their lens. While Daniel chapter 7 gave us a pretty good overview of the future and what awaits in the lead up to the end, Daniel chapter 8 switches gears as far as we're concerned. Now to Daniel, it's all in the distant future, but for us, what unfolds is actually ancient history. So I'll be real with you today, the teaching's going to feel a whole lot more academic than normal, kind of like you're in class taking notes on history, but stick with me because there is a reason that we have Daniel chapter 8. It's not just for Daniel's benefit and those who live shortly after him, it's for our benefit that as well, because what we see in Daniel chapter 8 reinforces some important attributes about God that we tend to gloss over in a really fast-paced, impatient world that we live in here today. Daniel gets the vision in chapter 8 two years after his vision 
from what happens in chapter 7. And then he gets it during the third year of Belshazzar's reign. So we're about nine years from the events of Daniel chapter 5. That's when the handwriting on the wall appears and that kind of thing. Uh, and that, this is when Daniel sees the vision of a ram with two horns, two long horns appearing. One of the horns is longer than the other. And this ram is very, very powerful. And as he's watching the ram, a goat comes roaring in from the west. And it comes coming in so quickly, it doesn't even appear to be touching the ground. It has one large horn, and it defeats the ram, breaking both of the ram's horns. But at the height of the goat's power, something happens. And here's where I want to pick up. You know, chapter 8, verse number 8. But at the height of his power, his large horn, this is the goat here, was broken off. In the large horn's place grew four prominent horns pointing in the four directions of the earth. Then one uh, prominent horn, and then from one of the prominent horns came a small horn whose power grew very great and extended toward the south and the east and toward the glorious land of Israel. Its power reached the heavens where it attacked the heavenly army, throwing some of the heavenly beings and some of the stars to the ground and trampling on them. It even challenged the commander of heaven's army by canceling the daily sacrifices offered to him and by destroying his temple. The army of heaven was restrained from responding to this rebellion, so the daily sacrifice was halted and truth was overthrown. The horn succeeded in everything that it did. Look at verse number 13. Then I heard two holy ones, there's probably angels here, okay, talking to each other, and one of them asked, how long will the events of the vision last, and how long will the rebellion that causes desecration stop the daily sacrifices? How long will the temple and heaven's army be trampled on? The other replied, it'll take 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the temple will be made right again. It's a big chunk to read. We're almost done, okay? Let's skip down to verse number 19. Gabriel appears to Daniel to explain the vision he just saw. And I should note, this is the first time Gabriel is actually mentioned by name in Scripture. Verse number 19. This is Gabriel speaking here, and he says, I'm here to tell you what's going to happen later in the time of wrath. What you've seen pertains to the very end of time. The two-horned ram represents the, the kings of Media and Persia, and the shaggy male goat represents the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes, well, that represents the first king of the Greek empire. The four prominent horns that replace the large horn show the Greek empire will break into four kingdoms, but none as great as the first. Now let's stop here for a bit before we come back to the rest of the explanation. Gabriel is explaining to Daniel what pertains to the future as far as Daniel is concerned. Now it doesn't concern us. For us, what's going to unfold is actually ancient history. It's already happened. Now what's going to throw you off a little bit is that phrase, the end of time. And you might be tempted to view the entire vision in light of the end with that phrase, but the problem with that viewpoint is the context that the vision is in. There's an old saying called context is king. So the context is a vision about historical events that will happen in two phases. One is close to 200 years after Daniel gets the vision. The other is close to 400 years um, 
in, in total at the end uh, of the vision. So you might wonder what's gonna, well, what we could possibly learn from Daniel chapter 8 if it involves historical events of the ancient past. This is a great example of mining timeless truths from God's Word. When you get a passage like today or an obscure passage somewhere else in Scripture, sometimes to find the applications, you have to really dig kind of deep. You have to think more than on a surface level reading to get some important takeaways. So with that in mind, let's dig a little bit. Let's mine something here today, okay? Let's mine an important but overlooked truth about God and how He operates that comes straight from this passage. I want to draw your attention to a term called God's providence. Now, what does that phrase mean? Well, providence is God working in and through the course of human events to bring about His will and His plan. I think sometimes like we get so caught up in God working supernaturally through supernatural means that we actually forget. He works far more supernaturally through natural means than we realize. Just to give you some examples, God hardens the heart of Pharaoh in Exodus so that Egypt can resist Moses' call for Israel's freedom. What does that do? What allows God to display His power and glory before both the Egyptians and the Jews in the forms of the plagues and parting the Red Sea? Another example is from the life of Joseph. We don't actually read about God at work directly in this story. Did you know that? You won't find phrases like, God heard Joseph's prayers, or Joseph trusted in the Lord, or you know, we, don't, we don't read about God performing miracles. Instead, <clears throat> you read about Joseph being sold as a slave then thrown into prison, then he becomes prime minister, then he saves his family and preserves the Jewish nation. Like that's God's providence at work. We even have examples outside of scripture. So if you look at just the events in the last century alone, you can see God's providence. Think about the devastation of World War I and World War II and all the events surrounding both those wars that led to the rebirth of the nation Israel in 1948. <clears throat> if you're paying attention, to apocalyptic prophecy, that's an integral moment in history that has to happen before the end comes. Well, that's, that's the providence of God at work. So let's bring it closer to home. Think about your life for a moment. What has God used to bring about His purpose and plan for you? Which people has He brought into your life at just the right time to provide what you need or to point you in the right direction? What events happened that at the time seemed ordinary, you know, but later you realized that was a total God thing? So when my wife and I first got married, just give you an example, we, we, we relocated to Nashville. Uh, they weren't exactly the best years, <laughs> okay? Like we'd often wonder why God led us there, why we were dealing with some of the things that we were, you know, we were going through. But this period led to our return to South Carolina and, and actually to the low country where we had six of the best years of our lives. Shana worked at one of the top children's hospitals in the country in Nashville. That opened the door for her to work at the top kids hospital in South Carolina when we were living in the Charleston area. I was privileged to be mentored by one of our overseers at Radiant Church who's also a leader in our network called the Assemblies of God. That's who Radiant Church, that's who we're a part of. I, I think more importantly though, the dream of what would be Radiant church, though we, we didn't know this at the time, okay, was birthed in our hearts during those years and as a result of those years in Nashville. So as difficult as that time might have been for us, it was very formative and God used it to bring us to where we are here today. That's the providential hand of God at work through the course of human events to bring about His will and plan. 
the events that Daniel sees, they actually happen in two phases. We just read the first phase. That's going to take place at the end of the fourth century BC. The ram's two horns represent Media and Persia. The horn that grows larger than the other is symbolic of Persia absorbing Media into its empire, okay? The goat's large horn is the Greek Empire led by none other than Alexander the Great. And he defeats the Persian Empire, and his own empire would actually stretch from Italy to Egypt to India and all of the Middle East. But Alexander suddenly dies at age 33. He doesn't have any heirs, right? Well, not entirely true. He actually has two sons, but they're assassinated pretty early on. So his empire actually breaks apart into four smaller kingdoms ruled by his generals. That's the four prominent horns. Gabriel then skips another 200 years after that to the second century BC and the rise of a notorious figure described in the vision as the small horn. Look at verse 23. At the end of their rule, when their sin is at its height, a fierce king, a master of intrigue, will rise to power. And he'll become very strong, but not by his own power. And he'll cause a shocking amount of destruction and succeed in everything that he does. He'll destroy powerful leaders and devastate the holy people. He'll be a master of deception and will become arrogant. He'll destroy many without warning. He'll even take on the prince of princes in battle. This is in reference to the Lord here, okay? But he'll be broken, though not by human power. So what Gabriel is describing here is the start of a very important part of Israel's history that most Christians know little about. It's a figure named Antiochus IV Epiphanes who comes to power in 175 BC in one of the smaller kingdoms described earlier. Now he wasn't supposed to come to power. Instead he manipulates his way into the throne room by usurping the rightful heir using all kinds of political deceit. Remember, Gabriel describes him as a master of intrigue and deception, right? So Antiochus, he's, he's so arrogant, too. He gives himself the title Epiphanes, which means God manifests. So in other words, he viewed himself as a deity on equal footing with the gods, which is bad enough. But then he attempts to force massive cultural and religious change on Israel. So the result is this. There's a split that happens among the Jewish people. One side embraces the Greek language and culture. They're known as Hellenized. Jews. The other side sticks to tradi traditional Jewish roots and becomes known as Hebraic Jews. Now that sounds real heady for some of you and you're probably wondering, Pastor, why does any of this stuff matter? Well, in the New Testament, there's a certain individual named Paul who writes a tremendous amount of material. He plants churches, he raises up leaders, he's responsible really for bringing Christ to the Gentile people on a large and successful scale. And one of the reasons he was so successful Paul was a Hellenized Jew. Hellenized Jews knew the Greek language, they lived in the Greek culture, they understood its people and its customs. Now they were viewed as sellouts by the other group of Jews, the Hebraic Jews. Someone like a Peter was a Hebraic Jew. They didn't know the Greek language, they weren't familiar with a lot of non-Jewish cultures, and they, they tended to stick to their Hebrew roots and customs and traditions. And this is what made it much more difficult for many of the Jews living in Israel to reach Gentiles. They're like fish out of water. But a guy like Paul, he fit right in because he'd grown up around this all of his life. Now the last straw 
uh, that kind of brought the camels back here was what Antiochus did to worship and the temple. So notice that Gabriel tells Daniel the small horn will even take on the prince of princes in battle. Remember, Antiochus thinks of himself as a god, so he declares war on God's people and subsequently on God himself when he sets up a statue of Zeus inside the temple and then goes further, he sacrifices a pig on the altar. So in doing so, he desecrates the place of worship for the Jews. Now before you go on to say, well, the temple was a building big deal, just think about the time period. Jesus hadn't come yet. So the Jews were living under the Old Testament law and, 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 and they were in that Old Testament temple era. The temple was the symbol of God's presence among his people. And so it was a symbol of life and hope. Antiochus knew all that which is why he intentionally desecrates it to try to remove God's presence and set himself up in God's place. Well, this sets off a massive rebellion called the Maccabean Revolt. For much of this rebellion, Antiochus has the upper hand. He killed or enslaved some 80,000 or so Jews during the conflict, but in the end, he's defeated. And for a very short time, Israel is actually an independent nation again until the Romans arrive onto the scene. So the temple, by the way, is, is restored during all this. It's, it's reconsecrated to God in the aftermath of the conflict. Note that verse 14 says, following 2300 days, the temple will be made right again. There's a tie-in here to Daniel chapter 12 and this image of new life being restored in the temple as well. And that's because Daniel 12 will, for the very first time in the Old Testament, teach on the hope for a new and restored life for God's people in eternity. There was always the idea of an afterlife in eternity, but very little was known or taught about it in the Old Testament era up to this point. But let's go back to the conflict, okay? Remember what Daniel says to Daniel, uh, Gabriel says to Daniel, he says Antiochus is really declaring war on God, and it's God who will bring him down. Even though we know the conflict in Daniel 8 is historical, it's clear that spiritual warfare exists. It's not Antiochus battling the Maccabees and the Jewish people. It's really a spiritual war between good and evil, between the enemy at work and God. It's certainly an early picture of what's gonna take place in the future with the rise of the Antichrist, someone who thinks of themselves as a God and sets out to demand worship from all around the world. Some of you understand today, you know, the realities behind spiritual conflict. Others of you don't. And so like to you, it might seem, you know, more mystical and spooky, just, just things you tell kids to behave type kind of thing. <laughs> you like Jesus, you believe the teachings, you accept Christ as the Son of God. But this whole cosmic war between angels and demons, God, the devil, just seems so kind of like old school, right? I think the enemy would like you to have that position. He's either really satisfied that we obsess way too much with it, as some folks do, or he's fine with us being so logical in our mindsets, we have no room for cosmic spiritual conflict. Either position is the wrong one for us to take. There is a spiritual war being waged. We're not fighting against flesh and blood. We're fighting unseen spiritual forces, as Ephesians 6.12 tells us. We see Jesus cast out demons from people, right? Uh, we read Satan enters into Judas the night that Christ is betrayed. So we can clearly draw inferences, too, with the events in history like the Holocaust and see spiritual conflict is at work in a lot of things. We don't fight darkness. 
you know, with, with like votes <laughs> or guns or hashtags. We fight it on our knees. We fight it invoking the power of the Holy Spirit. We fight it with the victory that Christ obtained on the cross. We fight it knowing that before anything happens in the natural, the battle has to be won in the spiritual. We fight it knowing that God brings about the ultimate victory. He may act supernaturally or he may act providentially, but he will bring about the proper outcome because God is in complete control. And that leads us to the last takeaway from chapter 8. We see God's providence at work. We see spiritual warfare exists. And we also see God's sovereignty on full display as well. Look at verse number 26. This vision, this is Gabriel speaking, about the 2300 evenings and mornings is true, but none of these things will happen for a long time. So keep this vision a secret. Then I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for several days. And afterward, I got up and performed my duties for the king. But I was greatly troubled by the vision and could not understand it. In spite of the circumstances that Gabriel lays out, God is in control. Now, many people get caught up in that number 2,300, okay? Remember, though, the numbers are not usually taken literally in apocalyptic prophecy. The number isn't given for precision. It's given to show there's a definite ending to the suffering the small horn will inflict on God's people. It reinforces the truth that God's judgment is certain, and His victory in this event, it's all but assured, because God is in complete control. We talk about God being in control quite a bit. We even sing about it. But when was the last time you fully believed it? When was the last time you were in a difficult situation? And instead of fighting upstream with all your might, becoming frustrated and discouraged, with each step back, you threw your hands up and said, God, you're in control. I trust you. Our natural instinct is to take the reins uh, all on our own and make our own way. And I'm not saying independence is a, is a, is a bad thing. I think it's, it's, it's certainly not. I'm a big believer in the individual and in carving out your own path. But you can't place all your trust and hope in yourself. The struggle many of us have is we give God lip service, right? We give lip service to the sovereignty of the Lord. We talk a good game. But we really don't believe He's in control because we don't live like it. I mean, yeah, like you don't know how you're going to cover rent. Keeps skyrocketing. All food prices, everything else keeps going up. You might be working multiple jobs trying to keep it all together and it's stressing you out. But remember, God's in control. What if the right job for you is just a little ways off? You have to endure this a little bit longer, but through it all, what's God doing? Well, He's teaching you and shaping you and building something within you in this time period. You have some medical issues that are beyond your reach. You've tried everything, nothing works. You feel like giving up, right? You know, but God's got this. He's in control. And what if He's waiting on you to fully, completely surrender over to Him, to acknowledge you can't fix this on your own, but He can. You have family problems. You have marital issues. You have a conflict that just seems insurmountable, right? Anxiety is eating away at you. You're frustrated. You're discouraged. You're down that you just can't solve this. You feel as if your future is now wrecked in front of you. You don't know where else to turn. You don't know where else to go. But God's in control. In spite of the circumstances, God has everything under His control. He can see what you can't see. He can do what you can't do. And I'm confident, I'm convinced that these seasons that we're, we're in that are difficult, we need to trust Him. Because as we do that, He builds something within us that makes us stronger and more resilient. And know today that God's in control. 
So Daniel 8 might feel like a flyover chapter. You might be tempted to skip places like this in Scripture and other obscure texts, but they're included in God's Word for a reason. And they offer important takeaways if you dig deep enough just to kind of go mine those takeaways, okay? So know that God works providentially. He works in and through the course of human events to bring about His will and His plan. And armed with that knowledge, keep in mind spiritual warfare, it's very real. And often behind these events is a spiritual conflict that's being waged. Be people of prayer then. Get on your knees and fight this battle against darkness in the spiritual, because that way we're going to see results in the natural. And then finally, know that God's sovereign. He's in control. Let Him have control, man. Let Him take care of everything. I've heard it said before that we should work as if it depends on us, but we should pray as if it depends on God. Listen, it does not rise and fall with just you. There is a God who is at work and is in control. Hand it all over to Him. Let me pray for you here today. God, I love you. Thank you for those who are watching and listening right now. Lord, I pray. Uh, you will work in our hearts and our lives from what we've taken away here in chapter 8 of, of the book of Daniel. God, remind us that you work providentially. There are all types of things you're setting into motion, you're doing behind the scenes that we can't see, that you're setting up for your will and your plan to be carried out, not just for our lives, but for, 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 for human history even, God. And so I pray that we, we would make sure that we understand that we know you're working and we trust you with what's taking place all around us. God, may we be reminded that spiritual warfare exists. May we fight that spiritual warfare on our knees through prayer, knowing, Lord, that we're not fighting other people. We're not fighting flesh and blood. We're fighting the powers of darkness. God, I pray that we're not oblivious to that fact here today, especially what's happening in our own world right now. May we be reminded for sure that spiritual warfare more than ever is heating up, and we need to be on our knees praying and asking you to defeat the enemy. Lord, before anything's one of the natural, it's got to be one in the spiritual. So I pray that we wage the war the right way. God, I pray you remind us too that you're sovereign and in control. When things seem out of our, our hands, when things seem just so difficult, we don't know what to do, where to turn, you're in control. You've got this. You've got us. We can work hard at it, but Lord, we have to know at the end of the day, it all rests in your hands. It all rests on you. Lord, you're in complete and total control. And God, I pray that we get to a place where we can surrender everything over to you with that knowledge. We thank you for who you are, what you're going to do in our hearts and our lives, and we ask all this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or would like to reach out to us, you can do so by emailing us at media at radiantchurchsc.com or visit one of our social accounts on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any future episodes and give us a five-star rating on the podcast platform that you listen to. We hope you have an amazing rest of your day.